Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 20. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, some of you might have noticed that Matthew's account of Jesus' resurrection is very, very brief. It's extremely brief. And actually, if you read Matthew's account and try to put it in order, like this is how it all happened, you're actually going to be a little bit confused. Because in Matthew's account, as the, it appears that Jesus is appearing to the women happens before they get to the disciples. When actually, as you put all the gospel accounts together, that's not the case. It reads out of order a little bit here. And so what I was going to do, but then I realized it would take too, too much time. And we have to finish tonight so that we can get into our Daniel study as we've advertised. I was going to take the time to have you walk with me and I'll show you all the scriptures, the whole account of Jesus' resurrection using all four gospels. And we'd go here and we'd go there. But I decided to do all that work for you and just put it, give it to you in order. If you want to double check later on, there are study Bibles out there. There are ways to research this. But I'm going to give to you the order of the resurrection appearances, not just of Jesus, but also angels and different things and how they all happen. All right. So first thing that happens on Resurrection Sunday is an angel rolls away the stone accompanied by an earthquake and the soldiers literally pass out in fear. Second thing that happens is the women arrive at the tomb. Now, before we go there, let me just kind of remind you, if you were to look at Luke's account, after, on Saturday, which was the Sabbath, once it turned 6 p.m., it turned into Sunday. And so what they did was they went when it was no longer the Sabbath and they went and bought spices on, after 6 p.m. on Saturday night. And then they went home with those spices but waited until morning on Sunday, if you will, to go and prepare the body themselves, even though Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had done a portion as well. As they're going now with these spices that they purchased after six o'clock, they are heading to the tomb. And when they arrive, they find the stone already removed. When you read Matthew's account, it sounds like the earthquake happens while they're getting there and all that. Actually, if you read all the accounts together, you'll notice that they were asking each other, who's going to roll away the stone for us? But when they got there, the stone had already been rolled away. The earthquake had already happened and they find the tomb empty. But angels appear inside the tomb as they look in and one speaks to them. Again, some gospel writers only give an account of one angel in the tomb. Others give two. It's actually the answer is there were two, but one of them speaks. And so an angel, one of the two angels speaks to them to remind them of what Jesus had said and to tell them to go tell his disciples that he was risen and that he would meet them in Galilee. Don't miss that. That's going to be important later on for us. He said the, the angel said, Go tell his disciples to go on to Galilee. He'll meet them there, like he said. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. The women rush back to tell the disciples, but the disciples don't believe them. That's what happens first. As they rush back, the, the disciples don't believe them. 
Peter and John, though, run to the tomb and look inside. And, and from John's account, we find out that John outran Peter. But when they got there, he was afraid to go in. And Peter, being more bold, went into the tomb and looked and found uh, only his grave's clothes lying there. And then they returned back to where they were. Now, Mary Magdalene goes back to the tomb by herself and meets Jesus, thinking that he was a gardener at first. And this is actually Jesus' first recorded appearance after his resurrection. And it was to Mary Magdalene by herself. Then Jesus then appears to the women on the road again and tells them to tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. They'd already gone back and told them about the resurrection and they what the angels had said. Disciples didn't believe them. A couple guys ran back. As you know from Luke's account, there are a couple of men who on the road to Emmaus decide they're going to head home. The women go back and as they're on their way back, Jesus meets them and says, go tell him to go to Galilee. <laughs> All right. So that's going to be important. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Now, at some point around here, Jesus appears to Peter. We don't know exactly when, but it's prior to his appearing to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Because the two men on the road to Emmaus, you remember, as they're walking back to Emmaus, they said some of our women amazed us. They came back and talked about how the place was the tomb was empty and they saw angels. A couple of our men went and checked it and they found it empty. But we don't know. And those two guys, after all that happened, start heading back to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them. Once they recognize him, they run all the way back into the upper room. And this is what they say. He's risen and he's appeared to Peter. So at some point, he's appeared to Peter during this time, and he also appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Of course, not long after that, as they're back in the upper room, Jesus walks through the wall because the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, and he appears to all of them that first night, Res Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and he appears to all of them except who? Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. It was a week later that he appears to Thomas in that place. Now, where did Jesus first appear to the disciples? In the upper room, but where? It was in Jerusalem. Remember what the angel said? He's going to go ahead of you to Galilee. They didn't believe him. They went and checked the tomb. Found it empty. Still confused. Go back to the upper room. Don't go to Galilee. Two men are discouraged. They head back to Emmaus. Who chases them down? Let me, let me just share something with you, folks. Is anybody else here like me and... Messes up a few times. Don't fully obey all that he said. He's patient. He loves you. And he, he's going to get what he wants done. But he's not this hard taskmaster that says, well, you had your chance. I told you to go to Galilee. Now you're not going to see me. He actually went out of his way to go chase him down, go meet him in the upper room, do it a couple of times. At some point, you're going to see this in our study tonight. They do leave Jerusalem. They go up to Galilee. Because remember, in John 21 is the account of the third appearance of Jesus. The disciples go out to fish. That's on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus appears to them there the third time. And they're like, hey, it's the Lord. And as you're going to see from our study tonight, at some point, they do meet with Jesus on this mountain. That's what G Matthew talks about here, where he had told them to go and directed them to go. But as you're going to see, it's more than just the 11, even though Matthew's account sounds like there's just 11. But there's more than just the 11. And I'll show you that in just a second. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to pull from Matthew's account some things out of here. That I think that'll be helpful for us as we wrap up our study. Again, that's just a rough synopsis of what happened on Resurrection Sunday. There are study guides out there that do a really good job of putting it all together in order. If you'd like to double check me, you're welcome to. But I believe I've got it in correct, succinct order. All right. So the first thing I want you to go back to and look at chapter 28 again. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to who? The women, don't be afraid. For they know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He's risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And then he told him, go tell his disciples. Do you notice how the angel said to the women, don't be afraid? Did the angel say, don't be afraid to the Roman soldiers? No. Actually, it pretty much appears the angel pretty much said to the guys, boo. <laughs> be afraid. Be very afraid. And they're like, yes, I think we will. And they passed out for like dead men. This, I want you to see this. This is important for us. The angels say to the women, don't be afraid. 
But the angel didn't say to the soldiers, hey, guys, don't be afraid. The angel said, be afraid. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, look at verses 4 through 7. Jesus is speaking and he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he goes on and says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. Now, how come Jesus is saying, let me tell you who to be afraid of. And then he goes into and oh, oh don't be afraid. We're going to we got to deal with this. We got to understand why the, the angel would say to the guards, be afraid. But to the women, don't be afraid. Now, first off, we have to understand who Jesus is talking about when he says whom you should fear. Don't be afraid of man who after killing the body can't do any more. But fear the one who after killing can has the authority to send that person to hell. Who is that? It's God himself. By the way, as I've traveled the country and I've shared this, you'd be amazed when I ask that question, how many Christians say, that's Satan. <laughs> Folks, please understand this. Satan doesn't have the authority to throw you into hell. Satan's getting cast into hell himself. Who has the keys to death in Hades? Jesus. The one who has the authority to throw you into hell is Jesus. And that's why he said, that's the one you should fear. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 9. And look at verse 10. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Here's what I want you to hear. God wants those who are not in a right relationship with Him to fear Him. He wants them to know their lostness, their, His holiness. And a knowledge of the Holy One will bring insight and understanding. And a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But once you, by faith, enter into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, he no longer wants you to be afraid of punishment and afraid of him casting you into hell. He wants you to not be afraid. What did the angels come and say to the shepherds? Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So why does the angel say to the guards, be afraid and the women don't be afraid? What's the difference? Their relationship, their relationship, their belief or unbelief. If you're an unbeliever, God says you better be afraid. You need to know your lostness. You need to understand that you're going to hell. But once you have moved into a right relationship with God through faith in his son, he then says, don't be afraid. These women believed. They didn't understand and didn't have full understanding. And if you're like me, I don't even fully understand how this all works. Anybody that says they do is lying to you. But the women, even though they are confused, believed. That's why they're going back. They're still worshiping him, even though he's been killed. Because of their relationship by faith, they have moved into a relationship where they're not to fear punishment anymore. But for those who are not right with God and they think they are, what they need is a good dose of fear. They need to understand where they really are. Go to 1 John chapter 4. We'll start in verse 13. First John chapter four, verse 13, it says, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses or agrees that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Now God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us that, so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, what he says is, if you're in a right relationship with God and he's given you his spirit, he sealed you. You're going to find out later on he sees you as more than just a servant. You're his. He loves you. And he no longer wants you fearing that day of judgment. And folks, I can look you in the eye and tell you, if I died today, I'm not afraid of dying. 
Why? Because I know that I've been made right with God because of Jesus and had nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. And I have a confidence for the day of judgment and I don't fear God's punishment. But the Bible also teaches in many places, I'm just going to show you one, that we as Christians, though, should still fear the Lord. That's probably a hard thing for people. But when I talk to you about fearing the Lord, I want you to first understand fearing the Lord. And when it comes to punishment, you, if you still are afraid of his punishment, you have not been made complete in his love. You've not been perfected in his love. That's why Paul said, I wish you'd understand the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. If you're still afraid that God's going to get you, you still don't get it if you're in Christ. But go with me to Psalm 34. Let me teach you, or let David teach us, the fear of the Lord for, for believers. It's a different type of fear. In Psalm 34, we're going to start in verse 8. David says this. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Now, young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Oh, come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who, what, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Now the face of the Lord's against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But when the righteous cries for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all their troubles. Now here's what I want you to hear. The Bible says that we as Christians should still fear the Lord. Is it a fear of punishment? Look closely then. What is this fear of the Lord for those of us who are his children? It's a reverence for sure. But take it a little further. Look closely at the context here. Let me teach you the fear of the Lord, David says. You want to see many good days? Those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. Oh, young lions even suffer want and hunger. But those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. You, you want to know the fear of the Lord? Let me teach you the fear of the Lord. Do what he says. Do what he says. Humble yourself before him. Trust in him. Rely on him. And the blessings that are yours because you're his child will be poured out on you. You know, I don't fear God's punishment anymore. You know what I fear? I fear missing out on his blessings. I don't want to miss out on his blessings. I hope my children have come after many years of growing up in our household to know how much their mom and I love them. And I want them to respect me and I want them to honor me as their father. But listen, it's because hopefully they've come to realize dad's not only wise or dad's been down the road. Dad loves us and dad's generous. And when we listen to dad, good stuff happens. When we don't listen to dad, we miss out. My fear of the Lord is a reverence. It's a respect, but it's a respect like for my father, whom I trust that everything he says is right and everything he says is good. And if I will just do what he says, I will be blessed. The Bible says that's true, folks. Let's not take it to an unbiblical realm. That means you're supposed to, everybody's going to be a millionaire and you'll never get sick. That's unbiblical. But there's a truth all throughout the scriptures that the Bible teaches that those who are generous, God gives them more so they can be more generous. And you'll be blessed in every way to increase in righteousness in every way. Jesus himself said in Malachi chapter three, he said, test me in this. See if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. Listen, I'm a good God. Let me ask you this question. Does God's word tell us that we're to be generous? OK, hang on. What does that tell you about God? That he's generous. He'd never ask you to do something that he doesn't do. So if God is saying, I want you to be generous, he's just said, that's who I am. But let's be honest. Most Christians don't see God as generous. They see him as a hard taskmaster, like the third servant in the parable of the talents. A lot of them see him as a, as, a, as a harsh God who's exacting a tithe and demanding this. And we try to figure out what's the least I can give to make him happy. And we miss out. We don't respect or reverence or fear the Lord. And those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. So if you are in not right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you better fear his punishment because it's coming. And actually, Jesus himself said in John chapter three, after John three sixteen, and we all love to quote in the verses following, he said, he who does not believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed. 
But once you have by faith moved into that relationship like the women had, he'll say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But how were to fear him? We're to do what he says and experience his blessings. Now, go back to Matthew 28 and look at what the angel says to the women. And then Jesus repeats to the women and then happens in verse 16. In chapter 28, verse 7, the angel says to the women, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now jump down to verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So again, the women have already gone back and told the men. They don't believe. They, a couple of them checked it out. They come back. They're still not sure. Two men on the road to Emmaus, or, or two guys that were with them, went down the road to Emmaus because they weren't really sure. And Jesus has to go and show up to them, say, get back to the house. Shows up at the house. Guys, I'm, I'm for real. You've got to believe this. But they were told to meet him there. He's going to appear to you in Galilee. And I've never noticed this until I did my study for this. In all these years that I've preached for where we're going to go, go to Matthew 26. There's something that happened in Matthew 26 that I had never, ever seen before. Look at Matthew 26, verses 30 and 32, 30, 31 and 32. This is on the night of the, the Last Supper, the Passover meal. Jesus eating right before his crucifixion. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you where? To Galilee. I'd never seen that. Peter then goes on and says, oh, I don't know about the rest of these bums. I'll die for you. I'll never deny you. And we got all caught up in Peter's buffoonery. And we missed it ourselves. Had anybody else ever seen that? I hadn't. He said, I'm going to rise from the dead and I'll meet you in Galilee. The angel said, he's going to meet you in Galilee. You'll see him there. Jesus then tells the women because that no one's believing it. Go back and tell them to go to Galilee. Now go to Matthew 28 and look at verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And that's when they give the Great Commission, which we'll close with tonight. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. But they finally end up in Galilee to a mountain that Jesus had directed them to go to. So that direction of where they were to go must have happened sometime after his resurrection, because otherwise they wouldn't have known where to go. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because if you remember from verse 16, it says that they... Uh, Met him on the mountain and verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And I've always wrestled with, all right, how could they doubt? Well, I think 1 Corinthians 15 tells us why. We'll start in verse 3. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's his half-brother who wrote the book of James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here we see from uh, Paul's account of Jesus' resurrection appearances, he doesn't list every one of them, but he said he appeared to 500 brothers at one time. Most likely, that's happening right now on this mountain in Galilee. Where did Jesus do most of his work, his ministry, for three years? It was in Galilee. He only went down to Jerusalem when it was feast times, and then he'd go back. He stayed away from Jerusalem most of the time, and Judah most of the time, and Judea most of the time. And so he tells them, go back to Galilee. Because he wasn't just going to appear to the twelve, which are now eleven, and of course the women and some of the others that are there. He also goes and he appears... For a while, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 1 in just a second, he appears for a while to the group of believers that are there in Galilee. And that's why the scripture says, but some doubted. See, because at this point, Jesus has already appeared in the upper room to the guys on that first night, except for Thomas. They've seen him eat fish. They've touched his hand and touched his side. A week later, Thomas is there and he sees and he believes. They, of course, see him on, when he's, they're out fishing in John 21. This happens after that, but there's still some believers in Galilee in that group of 500 that are all watching him that doubt. So that's when he gives the Great Commission. We'll come back to that in a second.
There's something else I want to pull out of Matthew here that I think is helpful for us. Go to Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 10. Jesus tells the women, don't be afraid. Go and tell my what? Brothers. That's important. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Go back to John chapter 15. John 15 verses 8 through 15. Jesus is teaching that last night. Before he went to the cross and John 15 verses 8 to 15. Look at what he says here. He said, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I commend, command you. Now, lo no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So here he goes and says, look, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. This is the night of his crucifixion. But after his resurrection, what does he call him? Brothers. Folks, there's been a transition that has occurred. Because of his life, sinless life in human body, because of his death on our behalf, because of his resurrection, something was procured for us. Something was accomplished for us that moved us not from just followers of Jesus and disciples of Jesus or servants of Jesus. He says, I'm going to call you friends because I'm going to show you what my father's doing and I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. And then after his resurrection, he goes, I don't even just see you as friends anymore. You're now my family. You're brothers. That's pretty cool. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. The Bible prophesied long ago that this was going to happen. In Hebrews chapter 2, look at verses 10 through 17. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's a quote from Psalm 22, 22. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, in Isaiah 8, 18, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, a service of God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. So don't miss this. God's plan all along was that when Jesus took our place, he would make us family. That's why he prayed in John 17 that we would be one as he and the father were one. We've always read Jesus was praying that we would all be unified. No, no, no. If you look at the context of John 17, he says, Father, I want them to be one with you as I'm one with you. I and them and you and me. I want them to have the same relationship that we have. And all through the Old Testament, we even see this happening. Back in Genesis 18, God's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he sees Abraham as a friend. And he says, shall I hide what I'm about to do from my friend? And he tells Abraham about what he's to do. And Abraham and he go back and forth about, well, would you destroy you if there's so many righteous and so on? But now, because of his death, because of his resurrection, because of his sinless life, we've now been made family. And that's really important. He wants, you to, he wants you to understand that. He really wants you to see him in that way. But Satan doesn't want us to know this. Now, yes, the Bible says that we should have an attitude that says we're, we're just humble servants. We've only done what we've asked. We need to not say, hey, I'm family. And I get, no, 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 be careful. But at the same time, don't lose sight of the fact that now God sees you so differently that you're in Christ. He's patient with you. 
Have the knuckleheads proven they don't listen? How many times have we seen it over and over and over? And they still don't listen, listen after his resurrection. And he has to go and prod them himself to go to Galilee. Did anybody catch verse 16 again from Matthew 28? Remember, the angel said, let me back up. Matthew 26, he said, I'm going to go ahead of you after I've risen to Galilee. There you see me. They missed it. The angel says to the woman, go tell his disciples, go to Galilee. That's where you're going to see him. They don't do it. They not only don't go, they don't believe. They check it. They're not sure. A couple of them think about quitting. He himself meets with the women and says, go back and tell them to go to Galilee. They still don't go. Matthew 28, verse 16 says, but now they finally end up in Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Who finally meets with them face to face and said, go to Galilee. To this specific mountain. You understand what I'm saying? Think of how patient he is. Folks, he loves you. He really does love you. And he's going to win. That's why Paul was told it's hard to kick against the goads. <laughs> he's going to win. But the sooner we believe him and trust him, even though it doesn't make any sense, the happier we'll be. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the reverence and the respect that we're talking about. Go to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, look at verses 9 through 17. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But... If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that's Daddy. His spirit, the spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, if you don't live for this life, but you live for the life to come and you walk with the Lord and you trust the Lord and you listen to what he says and you do him, you'll not only be blessed in this life, even though there'll be struggle, but you'll be blessed for eternity in a wealth of glory that we can't even fathom. That's why in the very next verse, I didn't read the very next verse, Paul said, after having seen heaven, I consider our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. What did Jesus or John say about Jesus in, back in John chapter 1? Remember, he talked about the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and all this. And he said, all who received him, he gave the right to become sons of God. Not born of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. Folks, we need to learn how to meditate on this truth and realize that Jesus doesn't call us servants. He's called us. He considers us more than friends now. He considers us family. He loves us. Oh, and let me share something with you. He'll never disown you. He'll never disown you. He's already promised I will lose none that the Father's given to me. Now, years ago when I was bagging groceries up in New Hampshire, one of the many jobs I've had in my life. I've actually sat down one day and just calculated jobs. I actually had paychecks. I've had 26 different jobs in my lifetime that I got a paycheck from. The reason I share that is because when my son was working and doing his first job and he was getting up early and going to work at Chick-fil-A and he saw me at this stage in my life where I'm home and when I'm home, I'm just doing study for preaching and teaching or I was on the road preaching. He only saw this phase of my life and he asked me one day, Dad, have you ever had a job? <laughs> and I said, sit down for a second. And it shocked me how many different jobs that I've had. Security, working six at night till two in the morning and all these different things. Maintenance at McDonald's. And one of my jobs was bagging groceries for three years at a shop and save in New Hampshire. And one day I was working at this shop and save and I was bagging groceries behind this African-American lady who had a, always, she was always cold and she had this sweater on that she had with her. And uh, 
A lady came through the line as we were bagging her groceries and she, her kid was doing something that was upsetting her. And so she grabbed her kid and she said, if you don't stop it, I'm going to disown you. And this wonderful older lady who was working the register calmly and quietly said, ma'am, can I, can I show something to you? And, and the lady was like, sure, I guess. And she reached into her sweater pocket and pulled out a picture, a worn photograph of her son. She said, this is my son and his name is He's 20-something years old, and he's in prison. He's done some wrong things. He's made some bad choices. But he's my son, and I'll never disown him. Stuck in my head. It's been 40, 50 years. Stuck in my head. Folks, you have entered into a relationship with God where you have become children of God, brothers with Christ, sisters with Christ. And you're said. Your fear should be just missing out on all that comes with that. Go to 1 John chapter 5. As you turn to 1 John chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 3 with me. But I wrote in my notes, he loves you. He's patient. But the sooner we realize his words are best for us, the better we'll be. Taste and see that he's good. Listen to 1 John chapter 5 verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. What does Satan want you to think His commandments are? Hard, heavy yoke. And what did Jesus say? Come to me, you're weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, take my yoke. And learn from me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, I'm not going to take too much time in this aspect of what happens next in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. But the, uh, the soldiers do wake up. And instead of going and telling Pilate what happened, because that would have probably got him killed. Remember, they were in charge of guarding the body. And if the body's no longer there, and there was a seal on that tomb of the, the governor. So it's interesting. They don't go to Pilate. They go to the religious leaders. Let this sink in for a minute. Even the Roman soldiers have started to realize that the Jewish religious leaders have authority over Pilate. They definitely have sway because they've already convinced him to do this and to kill him. And Pilate had no, he knew it was the wrong thing, but he, because of the pressure, gave in as we've looked into. So they go to them and they give them a large sum of money and say, just tell them. If anybody asks you, just say, while we were sleeping, the disciples came and took his body. And if word gets to the governor, Pilate, we'll take care of him for you. You can double check me. That's what it says. If word gets to the governor, we'll take care of him for you. Two quick things. How much are you willing to get to ignore the truth that you know? I mean, let's be honest. Did they know what really happened? Of course, they were the first hand witnesses to the angel and the earthquake and the stone. They saw it. They knew what happened, but they took a bunch of money to not acknowledge it. How many people today who have had their eyes open to the truth of who Jesus is? Because of cares of this world and whatever. Take that instead of dealing with the truth that they know. But there's something else that I want to deal with. From this, let me ask you a question. If the disciples came and took his body while the Roman soldiers were asleep, how do the Roman soldiers know who took his body? <laughs> you ever thought about that? If they were sleeping, they have no idea who took the body. Here's the problem with lying, folks. Once you tell a lie, you're going to have to tell a lot more to cover up the last one. Someone could have said, well, how do you know is that this? Oh, oh, and they would have come up with another lie. Just tell the truth. It's a whole lot easier. We're going to close our study of Matthew now, going back to the famous Great Commission. Go to Matthew 28. Look again at verses 16 and following. Now the 11 disciples, as we know now from Paul's account, there was more than 11. It's probably 500 at this time. Went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Oh, Stop for a second. 
What happened back, way, way back in our study in Matthew chapter 5? The sermon on the... Isn't that interesting? Now at the end, he goes and he meets them again on this mountain in Galilee. I wonder if it was the same one. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some still doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Jesus says to them, go into all the world and make disciples. Was he just talking to the 11 apostles? No, we've already cleared to clarified that, hopefully. So this commission, by the way, there was a long time in the history of the church that the church taught that the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples, was only for the preachers, only for those guys. Until finally people started to say, wait a minute, this is for all of us. And the scripture makes that very, very clear. But you may not realize this, but there's a qualifier, actually a couple of qualifiers to Jesus saying, go and make disciples. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Not everyone is to go everywhere. I mean, if you were to read what Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. He goes, all authority has been given to me. And I'm telling you, go into all nations and make disciples of all people and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Most of us would say, OK, that means I've got to go to all the nations because Jesus said, go to all the nations. Careful. When he said go to all the nations, there's qualifiers in the scriptures. We don't have time to turn there. But if you were to go back in your minds to Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, Paul, trying to be obedient to the Great Commission, tries to go into Asia, but the Spirit won't let him. He then tries to go into Mysia, but the Spirit won't let him. Later, he has the dream of the man of Macedonia saying, come and preach the gospel here. And they go looking for where God's at work. Listen, just because Jesus said go into all the world doesn't mean that everybody's supposed to go everywhere. You need to find out where it is that God's called you and who it is that he's wanting you to go share with. We've unfortunately had this wrong mindset that when we get into a neighborhood, we're going to supposed to go and knock on all the doors. You ever notice that? Ever heard? Anybody grow up with that kind of a thing? That sounds real good, doesn't it? But it's the flesh. It's man's way of trying to accomplish what only the Spirit could do. When Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, what did he tell them? He said, when you go into a town, look for where my Spirit's at work. Let your peace go out. If it's received, stay there. Don't go knock on every single door. You go look for where my Father's already at work, and you stay there and let him do what he's going to do, and it'll all take care of itself. So listen, the first qualifier is when Jesus said go into all the world, that doesn't mean everybody's supposed to go on all the world. You're to go where it is he wants you to go. As you know, Paul had a strong desire to preach to the Jews, but he came to realize that God had called him to preach to the Gentiles. And the sooner he feared the Lord and obeyed his commandments, the happier Paul was when he went to where he was supposed to go. But there's a second qualifier that's far more important. Between when he says go... And when they're to go, he tells them to wait. He says, go, but then he says, wait. Go back with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke's account of the two men on the road to Emmaus. We see in verse 19, I'm sorry, 13, Luke 24, verse 13, that very day, two of them, right? They rush back that night and they run into the upper room. Jesus appears to them. And then he takes the broiled fish. Look at verse 44. It says, then he said to them, and it almost reads like this is continuing on Sunday night. I don't believe this happened Sunday night. And you're about to find out why. When Luke says here in verse 44, then he said to them, I think he's a account or giving an account of something Jesus said to them, but it wasn't that same night. And I'll show you why. Then he spoke to them and said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. How does this show us that can't be that first night of his resurrection? He tells them if it's the first night. No, no, no. At this point, we don't know when he says this, but if it's in that first night and he's in the upper room in Jerusalem and he tells them to stay in Jerusalem until you receive power, they'll never go to Galilee. But they go to Galilee between the resurrection day Meet him there. And then they come back to Jerusalem. Remember, the feast had more than just the Passover. What was after the Passover? Pentecost. Day of Atonement. Actually, it was Day of Atonement and Pentecost. I want you to understand, there's a lot going on here. And so they probably went back to Galilee for a little bit. And then when the feast times continued, they went back to Jerusalem. So most likely, verses 44 and following happened not on that first day that he rose from the dead. Because at some point after meeting with them in Galilee, he says, I want you to go and stay in Jerusalem until you receive power. Go with me in Acts chapter one. Luke, who wrote the gospel we just read, clarifies it a little bit more. Go to Acts chapter one. Look at verses one through eight. In Acts chapter one, verses one through eight, in the first book, O Theophilus, Luke says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. For years, I thought that the Great Commission happened right before Jesus ascended on the Mount of Olives. But where did the Great Commission happen? In Galilee or Judea? In Galilee. Where's the Mount of Olives? It's in Judea. So the Great Commission is in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. But then after that, he said, go back to Jerusalem and wait there until you receive power from the Holy Spirit, like the Father promised, and stay there until you do. When they're there, back there, during the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes upon them, as you know, and it's about to happen. But right before that, as they're down there, they and they, the Holy, the, the Father, sorry, Jesus is taken up right before their eyes, right before the day of Pentecost. He says, wait here. Listen closely. Here's what I want you to hear. We're to go and to be used of God. It's for everybody. We're to, you notice that Jesus didn't say in the Great Commission, go preach. He doesn't say preach. What does he say? Make disciples doing what? No. I heard it over here. Teaching them everything that I've said. All you have to do is just tell them what he showed you. That's why it's valuable if we come to Bible studies and hopefully you remember some of this. The Spirit of God is going to bring it to your remembrance. And then you'll say, hey, look at some of the things God's been showing me. And all you're to do is tell them and share with them. But don't ever do it in your own power. Going without waiting is no good. We do this on a daily basis, by the way. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. I beseech you, I beg you, I urge you, depending on your translation, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship or reasonable service. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a daily renewing in the Greek. Listen closely to the rest of that verse, verse 2. Then you will know what the will of God is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Whom does God reveal his will to whom does God reveal where he wants them to go and how he wants them to live on a daily basis? Those who seek him and those who say no to their flesh and yes to the spirit. They lay their body on the altar and they, they renew their mind and they live according to the spirit. 
And they'll be the ones who God shows you how he wants you to live and how he wants you to go. In Romans chapter 12, we're not going to go there, but I'll quote it to you in verse th 3, the very next verse, right after he says, then you'll know his will. Paul then quickly says, I don't want any of you to think of yourself more highly than you ought. But each of you, humbly, if you will, with sober judgment, each in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. If your gift is prophesying or preaching, use it in proportion to your faith. In other words, just because two or three people are called by God to preach doesn't mean they're all called to preach in the same way or to the same type of people. Some people are gifted to stand in front of hundreds of thousands and preach and everybody out there feels like they connect. Others are more gifted to speak in smaller groups and settings. And then not just that, some are gifted to speak to people that know the word well. Others are gifted to speak to people that don't hardly know the word. And once you understand how it is that God's wired you and how he's gifted you and you use your gift in proportion to the faith and the measure that God's given you, you will find the joy of being used by God instead of trying to be like everybody else, trying to do everything everybody else is doing. Just find out what it is he has for you to do and you will find the joy of being used. Some he's given five talents, others two, another one, each according to their ability. And just do what he's asked you to do, but do it on a daily basis in his power. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. By the way, that passage in Romans 12, verses 3 and following, goes on and talks more than just preachers. It talks about people that serve and those that give and all those. They're to do it according to the power that God has. Go to 1 Peter 4. Look at verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why does God want us to wait before we go? Receive his power before we go? Lots of reasons. One. If we don't wait for him and receive his power, what we do will be of no value. It'll burn up. We'll suffer loss. But when we are used by him, who gets the glory? He does. I'm going to close tonight and close our study with Psalm 25, verse 14. Psalm 25, verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. I lay this out to you as, a, as, as, as an offer. Not only is salvation available. I believe hopefully everybody in this room knows the Lord. I don't know who's listening right now online. If you don't know the Lord, the offer first and foremost is that you be saved. But for those of us who are saved, don't just be happy that you're saved. Ask God to give you a hunger for more of him like Paul did. I want to know Christ more. And he will start to show you how he's wired you, what his plans are for you. And when you learn how to walk with him and the plan he has for you, and you take your eyes off everybody else, you will experience the joy of being used by God as he says, go into all the world and make disciples. And how does he close the book of Matthew? I'm with you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't call you servants. He sees you as friends and family. So go. Tell everybody about him. Oh, everybody that he has for you to tell and only in his power. I love you guys. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next week when we start Daniel.